Welcome to Conversations on Public Health, a regular program from the Harvard School of Public Health that explores current issues in the field. Today we're speaking with Michelle Mello, Professor of Law and Public Health. Mello and Meredith Rosenthal, Associate Professor of Health Economics and Policy, are the authors of a study in the July 10, 2008 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine that looks at whether health insurers and employers can discriminate against people on the basis of personal behaviors or conditions, such as smoking or obesity, that elevate their health risk. What are wellness programs and what is their connection to personal responsibility? Well, personal responsibility is a theme that we're hearing more and more in public debates about health care financing. We're hearing um, payers, insurers, and the employers that contract with them um, talk about the need for individual employees and uh, subscribers to take greater responsibility for health behaviors that are running up costs, like not exercising or continuing to smoke. And as part of that emphasis on personal responsibility, employers are encouraging employees to participate in wellness programs, which are um, formal or, or sometimes informal programs that the employer offers that often carry incentives for the employee to participate in things like a smoking cessation program, Weight Watchers, or just making an informal commitment to exercise more, uh, manage diabetes better, and so forth. Uh, so essentially, employers are asking employees to step up to the plate and help them control costs by getting their own health risk behaviors under control and are offering these wellness programs as a means to help them. What was your objective in writing this paper? We wanted to understand and to clarify the legal boundaries around what employers and insurers can do in terms of encouraging participation in wellness programs and more generally encouraging their employees and the people that they insure to take more responsibility for their health behaviors. There seems to be some uncertainty in this area uh, and it's a fast-moving area both in terms of the law and in terms of what's happening in the market and that contributes to this uncertainty. Um, we were motivated by uh, survey findings suggesting that both employers and insurers are increasingly interested in offering these types of programs. A 2007 survey indicated that nearly 40% of all employers and two-thirds of all insurers reported that they would pay their employees or subscribers for health enhancing behaviors in the next two or three years. So we wondered where does rewarding or incentivizing employees end and discrimination begin? You note that the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, which is commonly known as HIPAA, contains the most important legal provisions for health insurers' wellness programs. Can you explain how HIPAA applies to these programs? Sure. Most people think of HIPAA as a privacy law, but there's actually a section of the statute that deals with non-discrimination in insurance. Um, HIPAA applies to group health plans and other issuers of group health insurance. So it doesn't apply to, for example, individual health insurance markets or to employers directly. But what it does is require that uh, group health insurance issuers adhere to certain non-discrimination provisions that basically limit the extent to which they can charge you as an individual employee a different amount for your health insurance than other people that you work with. The general rule under HIPAA is that you can't charge an individual more for her health insurance than other similarly situated people because of her health status, genetic factors, a disability, or her prior claims experience. And similarly situated 
means a group of people that's in the same position with respect to their employment classification, like full-time or part-time. So that's the general rule. You can't individually rate health insurance, but HIPAA has uh, some exceptions in it for wellness programs. The statute intends to encourage the growth of these wellness programs within certain limits. And so it does allow a group health plan to provide financial incentives for people to participate in various kind of wellness programs. And there are really no restrictions on it if the rewards are tied to the person's participation. So you get $10 every time you show up to a Weight Watchers meeting, for example, regardless of whether or not you lose weight. Or you get rewarded for undergoing some kind of diagnostic testing, regardless of the outcome of that test. Those kinds of what I call pay for participation programs are always permissible under HIPAA. Where things get a little bit trickier is in the kind of program that attempts to reward subscribers for meeting some kind of a health standard. So in that kind of a program, you'd only qualify for a $50 reward, for example, if, you're, if you not only got tested for your body mass index, but it came back below 30. Uh, and for that kind of program, HIPAA imposes a number of constraints. It basically sets out uh, five criteria that those kind of plans have to satisfy uh, in order to stay on the right side of the law. Uh, the reward has to be modest, meaning it has to be 20% or less of the cost of providing coverage for that employee. The wellness program has to be reasonably designed to promote health or prevent disease. You have to let the member try for the reward at least once a year. You have to make that reward available to all similarly situated persons. And if a person has a medical condition that makes it hard or impossible for them to achieve the standard, you have to offer a reasonable alternative standard. And finally, you have to disclose the availability of that alternative standard in your program materials. So you can see that it's much harder for insurers to maintain what I'll call a pay for performance program somewhere, something where they only reward the uh, subscriber if they actually perform to a certain level in reducing their health behaviors uh, than to maintain a pay for participation program. What other laws apply to insurers' wellness programs? Well, there are actually a bunch. There's a whole web of laws that interact to govern the legal permissibility of these programs. But the most important other law is the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. Uh, now, this law applies to employers that have 15 or more employees, and it also imply, applies to insurers. And basically, it discriminates both groups from discriminating against individuals on the basis of what the statute defines as a disability, uh, and that's a substantial impairment that uh, limits one or more major life activities. Now, the ADA does allow your insurer to adjust uh, your insurance cost on the basis of health factors that would be reasonably related to the insurer's expected costs. So that's why they can charge you more for having a pre-existing condition, for example. Um, but the big question under the Americans with Disabilities Act is whether employers could fire or otherwise penalize employees uh, for having certain health behaviors. For example, could you fire someone for being a smoker? Could you reduce their salary or benefits because they continue to be morbidly obese? And this is an area where the courts have had to get involved, primarily to figure out what constitutes a disability under the statute. It turns out that 
smoking, even though it involves nicotine addiction, is not currently considered to be a disability under the ADA. So yes, an employer can fire somebody for being a smoker. Obesity is a harder case. The courts have opined that merely being overweight doesn't constitute a disability, but if you're morbidly obese, some courts may find that to be a disability, particularly if the court can link it or the litigants can link it to uh, a so-called physiological cause. There's something wrong with you physiologically that makes it difficult for you to maintain normal weight. Uh, so in jurisdictions where there have been rulings to that effect, it may be more difficult for an employer to take adverse action against someone who's very obese. The other place that the ADA comes in is when employers want to ask questions about health conditions and health risk behaviors. For example, by asking employees to fill out a health risk appraisal. They're only allowed to do this as part of a wellness program if that program is truly voluntary and if they can show that they're not using the information to discriminate against the employee, that they're treating the information confidentially, and they're keeping it accessible only to their wellness program staff. In other words, the HR office isn't allowed to see it. So what are some of the key issues employers and health plans face in the future with regards to encouraging workers to adopt more healthy lifestyles? Well, clearly they're going to have to be careful to stay within the letter of the law. And again, this is kind of a moving target, so it's not always clear uh, where those boundaries are going to lie. For example, one big area of uncertainty right now is how federal laws that I've talked about might interact with state laws. For example, state laws that ban discrimination on the basis of weight, as Michigan does, or laws at the state level that aim to encourage wellness programs, um, for example, by allowing them to give bigger incentives than what's allowed under federal law. How the preemption issues, the discussion of whether federal or state law is going to trump in those conflicts uh, is going to play out is really unclear at this time. Um, but generally looking at the federal laws, one thing that's clear is that it's going to be easier for employers and insurers to offer pay for participation wellness programs that reward people just for attending a seminar or trying uh, to achieve some health standard than to base rewards on whether they can actually achieve a health standard. And that raises a further question of whether the kinds of wellness programs that are permitted by law are actually going to be effective in achieving the kind of reduction in health risk and costs that the wellness program sponsors are hoping for. Now I think it, it makes sense and there's certainly literature in behavioral economics and psychology to suggest that the bigger the reward you offer someone, the more likely they are to actually achieve behavioral change. Now HIPAA limits the size of that reward to 20% of the employee's coverage. Uh, so it may be undercutting the goal that employer or insurer might have. Similarly, it stands to reason that if you condition the reward on the achievement of some goal, you're more likely to get the person there than if you pay them whether or not they achieve the goal or not, simply if they try. Uh, so again, the, the boundaries that the law has drawn out here and the incentives that the law creates for the design of these wellness programs may not be the same as the kinds of designs that, uh, based on the available empirical evidence uh, as well as theoretical literature, we'd expect to work in get, getting people to change their health behaviors. But this is going to be a difficult area going forward because there really hasn't been a lot of evaluation of these programs yet. So there aren't many best practices that have emerged to really guide employers in program design. It's hard to know what works. And without knowing what works, it's also hard to make intelligent decisions about what the law should allow going forward.
This has been a Harvard School of Public Health production. Please visit us on the web at www.hsph.harvard.edu.